Spoke Media. Hello, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. Back in 2012, Mira Sharma was traveling around India for a few months with her partner, Henry. And one day, in the city of Chennai, also known as Madras, they went to visit Mira's great-uncle, who Mira called Peripa. Peripa means older father. He's my grandfather's oldest brother. Peripa lived with his wife, who I call Perima, and his sister, Kunjate. I was excited for Henry to finally meet them. Yeah, so we got to this apartment, which was one apartment in a block of apartments. And I think we took an old elevator up to theirs, one of those elevators that has a grill you slide across instead of the solid doors. In the house, the walls and floors were made of concrete. It was dark and austere. To see these three elderly people living there in what vaguely resembled a prison cell was a bit jarring. But there was some warmth. Piles of books, the smell of spices, a big comfy couch. The three had been sharing a house for decades, and they always reminded me of the grandparents from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Mostly homebound, frail, nearly a century old. But they took care of each other, entertained each other, relied on each other. Among them, Peripa was this monumental figure, a person who everyone in our family seemed to admire. He was tall and lanky, and even in his 90s, he had a graceful way of moving. I always thought of him as just a really upstanding man. He'd lived what seemed like a pretty conventional life. Wife, four kids, steady job at a medical device company. But he had all these other interests. He was really good at chess, he was a math whiz, he spoke six languages, knew a lot about astronomy, poetry, history. There was always something about him that struck me as special. Henry saw it too. He had this great sparkle, this sort of twinkle in his eye. So we sit down on the couch with some tea and biscuits and start going through the usual pleasantries. You know, how, how was everything? How was the trip? How was, where are you coming from? And all the rest. And then got into more personal questions about where you are in life and what's going on. And that's where it happened. Henry tells Peripa that he's been studying Arabic. And Peripa really lights up. He goes over to his bureau to get something. A tiny notebook. It's about the size of two postage stamps, probably two inches by one and a half, something like that. Quite a thick kind of cloth binding and it's on a keychain, it's that small. And the front of the cover is embroidered with sequins, mostly silver and then a few green sequins and little beads. So it's quite kind of shiny and sparkly. And it's empty except for in the first two pages, this slightly illegible Arabic script that Peripa wrote in front of us when we were there. I remember that moment feeling very charged, like we'd been given a talisman. We said our goodbyes and got picked up by my uncle Kichu. On the drive home, we told him about the notebook. He said, oh yeah, Peripa was very good at Arabic. Didn't you know he had a Muslim lover? Uh, no, I did not. Kichu tells us how when Peripa was a young man, he was a bit of a rebel. He ran away from home, worked in Bollywood, joined the army, and he fell in love with a woman named Merunisa from a Muslim family. Peripa's family, my family, are quite orthodox Hindus, so at the time, the relationship was a huge scandal. This was all news to me. I knew Peripa as a stable family man. Wise, curious, engaged, yes, but not necessarily a rebel. I wanted to know this other side of him, this colorful past, a time before the dark concrete walls of his Spartan apartment. I was intrigued, and I wasn't alone. You'll be playing, and then you'd hear the elders talking about something that happened in the neighborhood or something that was not very comfortable in that community. That's my aunt, Indra. For example, there was one phrase which often occurred in my early teens would be, oh, I mean, hopefully that's not another Mahirunisa story. 
She says that when she was a kid, the story of Peripa and his Muslim lover was whispered about as a kind of cautionary tale. But whenever she would ask, the whispers would abruptly end. That is nothing for you. Go away. Go do your thing. And uh, okay, we forget about that. After Mira and Henry's visit with Peripa, they continued their travels around the southern part of India. They eventually made their way to Bangalore to visit Mira's cousins. And when we were leaving Bangalore to go overland on another long train journey, I remember cutting down things that were in my bag. And in the front of this old backpack that I was carrying were a lot of little bits and pieces that didn't need transporting to the next place. So I took them out in a big pile and left them at the house of our host. And on the journey on the train, I realized that I had mistakenly left behind the notebook in that pile of belongings that I'd left at the house. I was very sad we'd left the notebook behind. It felt like a real connection to Peripa, a little piece of history. Mira and Henry returned to the U.S. without the notebook. Henry tried repeatedly to reach Mira's cousins in Bangalore and have the notebook shipped to them, but to no avail. Gradually, Mira resigned herself to the fact that the notebook was gone. It was a long time before Mira was able to make it back to India, six years, in fact. And during that time, Peripa passed away at the age of 102. I finally went back to visit Perima and Kunjate, his wife and sister, at the apartment they still shared. They tell me about Peripa's death, how, on the day, he went through his usual routine, ate breakfast, drank coffee, read the newspaper, took a walk around the house. And then he quietly sat down on the couch, put his palms together in a prayer position, raised them over his head, and closed his eyes. That was his death. So graceful and simple. I start thinking about Peripa's so-called rebel years, about which I still know only bits and pieces. The following week, I travel from Chennai to Bangalore and visit the same cousins from 2012. And when I arrive, there's a package waiting for me. Inside, it's the notebook. The little notebook on a keychain covered in green and silver sequins with Peripa's writing inside. From Spoke Media and WALT, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 11, His Minor Years. It was an incredible confluence of events. Getting the notebook back felt like Peripa had kind of paid me a brief visit and dropped this off. Like he was telling me, go ahead, go forth. See what you can find. Our story begins after the break. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. This week, Mira Sharma is telling the story of her great-uncle, who she called Peripa, and a scandal that threatened to tear her family apart. Peripa's story begins in the city of Hyderabad in the early part of the 20th century. While most of India was under British colonial rule at that time, Hyderabad was its own kingdom, ruled by the Nizams, descendants of the famous Mughal Empire. It was the richest of India's princely states. The Golconda diamond mines were located there. And, and of course, uh, most of those diamonds that were extracted uh, ended up in the coffers of, of the Nizams. That's historian John Zubrisky, author of The Last Nizam, The Rise and Fall of India's Greatest Princely State. Paripa was born in 1913, shortly after the seventh Nizam, Osman Ali Khan, came to power. Osman Ali Khan transformed Hyderabad from a sleepy town to a modern city, building new universities, roads and dams, developing a reliable drinking water supply, mandating primary education. He also ensured Indo-Muslim culture had a prominent place in the city. Hyderabad always attracted, uh, you know, the best, the greatest, the most talented Muslim writers, artists, um, cultural figures in all of India. So it was quite a quite an extraordinary place in that sense. The Nizams were Muslims ruling over a majority Hindu population, but for the most part, there was a peaceful coexistence. 
Osman Ali Khan uh, said himself that uh, the Hindus and Muslims are my two eyes. You know, he didn't distinguish between, you know, his Hindu and Muslim subjects, at least in theory. Tolerance uh, was reflected in the art and culture of, of Hyderabad. In the midst of this moment of cultural flowering, Peripa was part of a particular group within the Hindu community, a Tamil Brahmin family. Brahmins are upper-caste Hindus, and they've historically worked in education or religion. Peripa was born in very interesting times. That's my aunt Indra again, Peripa's niece. She says that something remarkable happened when Peripa was young. His parents left the small village where he and his four siblings were born, in the deep south of India, and came to Hyderabad, this foreign place that was not only far away, but ruled by Muslims. They were drawn by the prospect of work. The Nizam had been recruiting upper-caste Hindus to work for the government, and Peripa's father got a job setting up schools and training teachers. The work was good, but integrating into this new world was challenging. First, the food was different, so they could not eat or drink in each other's homes. The Brahmins, first of all, would not even eat or drink in any other community's home, let alone a Muslim home where meat was eaten and cow and goat was eaten. So the utensils were polluted. While the Brahmins lifted the cup, the cup never touched the lips. Indra told me that the family's strict adherence to Tamil Brahmin customs resulted in a kind of self-imposed isolation from the Muslim community in Hyderabad. You were greatest of friends, but you never ate or drank in their house. You never visited to sit down. And that's the culture. So they needed the same kind of families to be a group of friends. And so the family lived on a street filled with other Tamil immigrants. It was a close-knit, Warren-like neighborhood. In the mornings, after the women had cleaned and cooked for the day, they'd gather on someone's veranda and knit or sew and chat. There was very little privacy and plenty of gossip. And as he got older, a lot of that gossip centered on Peripa. I believe he was a very, very fashionable person. He was always well-dressed in a coat and a bow tie and a suit he liked to be. That's my uncle Kichu, the one who casually mentioned Peripa's scandalous past in the car that afternoon. Kichu says that Peripa was handsome. He rode a horse around the city. He loved writing and reciting Urdu poetry, speaking Hindi, socializing with Hyderabad's cosmopolitan set. I gather he was kind of a savant, a man about town. And he really pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable for a proper young Tamil man of that time. I smoking, drinking, all kinds of things, illegal things to do. That's my grandmother, who I call Patti. Her husband, my grandfather, who's no longer alive, was Peripa's younger brother. She says when Peripa was in his early 20s, their father lost his job working in the schools. And it's unclear why. My aunt Indra told me it's possible he missed a tax payment of some kind. But also... One of the reasons they say is at that time, the Muslim minority who were becoming more and more militant, one of their members wanted that job. And just as the money stopped coming in, he was diagnosed with diabetes, which at the time was often fatal. Peripa was the oldest son, but he wasn't inclined to take over any family responsibilities. He never stayed at home. He was uh, uncontrollable. Peripa had just graduated from college, and despite his father's troubles, the family was willing to cut him some slack. For a while. There's a word that gets used in Tamil, minor. It's a relic of British influence in India, and it technically means the son of landed nobility. And the miner sowed their wild oats before they settled down to the family. So those words were very popular. So they said, oh, he's, it's his minor years. He'll come back. Except he didn't. He actually ran away, just as his father was descending deeper into illness. Peripa got on a train to Bombay, and somehow he managed to befriend a famous Bollywood screenwriter and director named K.A. Abbas. According to my uncle Kichu, Peripa's facility with language, particularly Hindi and Urdu, led him to tutor famous film stars in diction or teach them the language altogether. 
One of Peripa's tutees was Lalitha Pawar, an actor who went on to have a 60-year career and become one of the icons of 20th century Bollywood. This whole thing was a big scandal for Peripa's family. Good Tamil Brahmin boys don't go cavorting around Bollywood, especially when their father is incapacitated and the family needs them. And then it got worse. The British were recruiting soldiers to fight in World War II. Peripa signed up. Brahmins don't do that. Again, my Aunt Indra. I mean, they don't join the army because a couple of things about armies was, one is you have to eat other kind of food. The minute you ate a non-Brahmin type of food, like a meat or anything, you were already outcast those days. Somebody ran away to the army was like a totally washout and you can kind of declare that person as gone kind of thing. My uncle Kichu says the family realized they had to do something drastic. And they pulled a lot of strings to get him out of the army. And pulling strings alone wasn't enough. My family knew Peripa wouldn't come back willingly. So they sent his brother-in-law on a rescue mission. He got on a train to what is now Pakistan, where Peripa was stationed, and tracked Peripa down. He demanded that Peripa come back to Hyderabad. Peripa agreed, but only because his younger brother, my grandfather, had gotten a scholarship to go study in England for a few years, and he wanted to see him off. By this point, Peripa's father had passed away. And my grandfather, the second oldest son, was about to go off to England. High time for Peripa to settle down and start earning. My aunt Indra says Peripa was at a crossroads. Peripa comes back, you know, carefree young man who has lived in the movie world, who has lived abroad, and uh, did his own thing, managed to live for two, three years without this family support. Being asked to take over the burden of the traditional family, and I don't think he liked it. I think he was still in the aura of all the things he had done. And so he took a different tack, one that, in the shadow of his time in Bollywood, seems fitting. He fell passionately in love with a woman who my Uncle Kitchi describes as a princess. Which, what? A princess? I asked my grandmother Patti about this. Kitchu told me, eh. she was she a member of the royal royal family or Nizam family or something? I think so. Uh, I think she's a member of a Nizam family. Because this Nizam had 108 wives, you know? <laughs> okay, so I guess that would sort of make her a princess. Her name was Marinissa. She was beautiful. Also, she was Muslim. He will say, I'll go for a walk, I'll go to get something, and then he'll walk off to that Muslim girl. And something will be disappearing in the house. <laughs> he'll sell it and go off. He'll sell it? Uh, he was taking stuff from the house. Uh, yeah, some things from the house and all. Like that. So that was Peripa's scheme. He'd say, I have to go run an errand. And on his way out, he'd swipe something from the family house to sell and use the money to go visit Marinisa. Eventually, his family caught on to what was happening. While Hindus and Muslims had long coexisted in Hyderabad, dating outside your religion, dating at all, really, was not a thing. And intermarriage? Absolutely not. Peripa's family tried to reason with him, but my grandmother told me it was hopeless. If they shout at him, he will walk away from the house like that and all, no? Peripa would simply wander away, ignoring the family as they called after him. And then, one day, Peripa just didn't come home. He disappeared from the family again. Our story continues after the break. Spoke Media. Welcome back to Family Ghosts. This week, Mira Sharma is investigating the secret life of her great-uncle, who she called Peripa. Before the break, we learned that after fleeing his family once in the 1930s, Peripa ran off for a second time several years later to pursue a relationship with a Muslim woman named Maranisa. And as we're about to learn, the relationship 
was even more serious than his family feared. According to my grandmother, eventually Peripak converted to Islam, and he and Marinissa moved in together. So they lived together? They live, that's why they got a, he got a child. That's what somebody was telling, no? So they lived together in Hyderabad? In Hyderabad, near Charminar. Charminar is the old city of Hyderabad, a predominantly Muslim area. They lived together, and, and they maybe had a child. They had a child, yes. Who, how do you, do you know that they had, for sure? Or? Somebody told that. I'm of the opinion that if somebody mentions a child, there's probably a child. My aunt Indra is more definitive about this. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was a child, definitely, yeah. Uh, I think it was a girl. That's my thought on it, yeah. So, there was a child. As you might imagine, none of this, the marriage, the child, the conversion, was okay with Peripa's family. So, their close-knit group of Tamil friends finally banded together. It was time for another rescue mission. They got hold of help from some family members and actually uh, went one day, dragged him out of the house, brought him back home. Marinisa's side of the family was obviously furious. The brothers of the girl came knocking at the door with knives in their hands, saying, we are going to take him. We are going to kill him. So they hit Peripa in some bathroom or in a lumber room or something. I covered him with the trash and all and kept him for three days. Patti says Peripa's family covered him in garbage to hide him. Indira remembers it a little differently. And my grandmother says, I went into the garden to feed him in the night. We hid him in the backyard under the haystack. But either way, haystack or garbage pile, they kept him away from Marinisa's brothers. And then they snuck him out of the house under the cover of darkness. They had to spirit him away, whatever means they could. My, the story I heard was he was taken away by some farmers going south. This was all happening around the time of India's independence from the British, when Hindu-Muslim relations were shifting dramatically. An extremist group that wanted Hyderabad to remain a separate Muslim country rather than join with the rest of India post-independence was gaining power. The Hindu population in Hyderabad was being targeted and driven out. So Peripa's saga was unfolding in a fraught, uncertain political moment. And the family was genuinely concerned about a backlash. They feared that Marinissa's brothers might return to terrorize Peripa's two sisters. And then they were worried, uh, all the young girls in the house, whether they would be uh, ravished. So they had to pack the girls out to the village immediately. Peripa's sisters went out to the village for a while, and Peripa was safely ensconced in the Tamil Nadu capital, Madras, far away from Marinissa. There's certainly a sense of melodrama to all of this, especially because it's so deep in the past. But I just want to acknowledge how traumatic this must have been for Peripa and Marinissa. They were young, but they were in a real relationship. They had a child, all despite their family's protestations. Imagine, then, being forcibly separated, literally dragged apart. How unbelievably painful. I don't know if Peripa protested. I don't know if he tried to escape back to Marinissa when his family hid him away. Maybe he was shocked into submission. Maybe he was just broken. My grandmother once mentioned that a few days after Peripa was shipped off to Madras, Marinissa showed up in the Tamil neighborhood with their child. Apparently, she asked for help asked how to find Peripa. She was sent away. And this is where she disappears from my family's narrative of what happened. Not long after, the rest of Peripa's family fled Hyderabad, fearing persecution. Some of it brought on by the political climate, and some of it brought on by Peripa. They traveled south to Madras. Peripa moved in with his older sister and his brother-in-law, who gave him a job at his medical device company. But even after they'd forcibly removed Peripa from the home he shared with Marunisa, or maybe because of it, the family was still wary of what he might do next. So once again, my uncle told me, they were forced to hatch a plan. And then, uh, like, uh, generally the uh, solution at that time, or maybe even now, is to get the married. <laughs> In those days, the solution for young men who were behaving erratically was to, in the words of my uncle Kichu, get them married. 
And Indra says they didn't have to wait long for a promising option to materialize. Because Peripa was working in a scientific uh, organization, he had this BS degree and he looked very nice, wore Western clothes and spoke English well. A very famous businessman wanted his daughter to be wed to him. And Pati thought, okay, this is our savior. But in spite of the degrees and the nice clothes, Peripa's reputation had followed him. The girl's father made an ultimatum. So that father of that girl said, okay, I know this history. You had trouble with this young man. After the wedding, apparently he said, let him stay in my house. I want to educate my daughter, but I will make sure he will have a good life. I'll you know, I'll make sure that he doesn't get into trouble. But he has to come and stay in our house. Because apparently he didn't have a guiding principle in this household. This did not bode well with Peripa's mother. A girl was supposed to come live in the boy's house, not the other way around. So Peripa's mother refused the man's offer. Which I found confusing. Why wouldn't she just let him go? It was an ideal opportunity to settle him down. And wouldn't Peripa be anxious to get away from the family that had separated him from his beloved? There was never any talk of whether he had a say in that matter. All it was was uh, forever we would say, Pati did not allow him to go live in that man's house. Hmm. I guess the idea of, her, of you know, losing him was very powerful. You know, she really didn't want to yes, let him go. So. That they had already lost him for 10, 12 years. They didn't want to lose him again. The refusal to let Peripa live in his wife's father's house doomed the marriage, and before long, the couple got divorced. Yet another huge scandal. So the family needed to get Peripa married again. Now that he was both divorced and trailed by the story of Marinissa, it was getting harder and harder to find prospects. His mother managed to find a distant relative, a woman named Lakshmi, who was in the midst of her own travails. She'd been basically living as an indentured servant in a wealthy family's home. She and her three sisters were born into a family where her dad lost all the family money, sold the land to go live with a prostitute. The word I use, prostitute, is bad. Somebody who was a dancer. So he abandoned his children lost all the money in gambling and whatever, and lose living. Lakshmi and her two sisters were divided up amongst the homes of people in the area, where they had some hope for a more stable life. But it meant that she and Peripa had something in common. Nobody wanted to marry her, either. Which is how Lakshmi became Perima. Perima was strong-willed, a notorious taskmaster from the beginning, she was determined to be Peripa's savior, to keep him in line. I imagine it was also about imposing order on her own life, after she'd dealt with so much as a young woman. Not long after Perima and Peripa were married, tragedy struck again. That same year, another very sad incident happened was Kunjatai's husband had committed suicide in the village. Kunjatai, you might recall, is Peripa's younger sister. And they felt Perima was the one to keep the family together. After Kunjatai's husband's suicide, she moved in with Peripa and Perima. That's when they became the close-knit trio living together in that simple apartment. Maybe it was the seriousness of that event, the suicide of his brother-in-law, that kind of woke Peripa up. Maybe he thought, my issues pale in comparison to this. Or maybe he'd grown up and was ready to settle down. Or he was simply tired of fighting against his family and the world he was expected to fall into. Whatever the reason, this is the moment where he began the life I knew about. He had four daughters. He kept working at the medical device company. He lived with Perima in Madras for the rest of his life. I asked my grandmother if Peripa stayed in touch with Marinissa. I don't know anything about that. Did he used to talk about it? No, <laughs> but Peripa simply, while joking, he will say, if I had been with the Muslim girl, I would have been very more happy than with you. I could have made some chicken and all offered to God. <laughs> he will say, simply joking. He'll say that to Perima? Yes, to Perima. 
It's kind of surprising hearing that Peripa would joke with his wife about Marinissa, how he would have been able to eat meat if he'd been with her, how he wouldn't have had to follow all those strict Hindu traditions. But it's also heartening. It suggests to me that even though that history was largely suppressed, it was still there. Their relationship was able to withstand it. They could acknowledge it, be a little light about it. It makes me think that it wasn't all just functional, that they were able to see each other for who they were. But still, for years after, there were anxieties. Our family never had gatherings in Hyderabad. They were scared that Peripa would be recognized on the street, that Marinissa's family might come after him with knives again. For most of my life, I knew nothing about Peripa's past. He was always the family man, the patriarch. And then when I started to discover this other side of him, his desire to strike out on his own, do something different, I was in awe. This young man growing up in a tumultuous era, in an extremely orthodox family, trying to do his own thing, break with tradition, make his own rules. How bold, how admirable. I think when I began this story, I was seduced by this idea, that he was this free spirit, but born in the wrong era. It was a way for me to connect with him. I saw myself in him. But the more I learn, the more my feelings about him keep shifting. He left his mother and his younger siblings behind when his father was jobless and dying. He caused all sorts of fear and angst after he married Marinissa, and then he didn't seem to own up to his decisions. Did Peripa truly want to carve his own path? Or was he just reckless? Did he really want freedom? Or was he too overwhelmed by the responsibilities that were landing on him and just closed his eyes, ran away? And what about this child? What happened to her? Coming up, Mira searches for the aunt she may or may not have. We'll be right back. I wouldn't even know about Peripa's story if it weren't for that offhand remark made by my uncle Kichu. As my aunt Indra said, it was pretty much the same thing for her when she was a kid. You'll be playing, and then you'd hear the elders talking about something that happened in the neighborhood or something that was not very comfortable in that community. For example, there was one phrase which often occurred in my early teens would be, oh, I mean, hopefully that's not another Mahirunissa story. Peripa's life became this cautionary tale, but one that was never fully explained. Of course, all families have that maybe tendency to suppress, but do you think that there's something unique about the kind of family that we're a part of, like Tamil Brahmins in particular? Well, Tamil Brahmins are a unique uh, group. They, I would say personally, we are in a way arrogant about our intellect. You automatically, you are supposed to be good in learning, good in science, mathematics, good in the arts. You knew how to sing, you knew how to dance. But no amount of status can shield a family from scandal. Like all families, like all mankind, everybody has the red blood. We really, none of us have blue blood. So there are skeletons to hide. There are stories to be not aired there and there are stories to be aired and you know shared with others so i i think we are just another family but tamil brahmins tend to whitewash the old stories or the negative stories it all harkens back to the experience of peripa's family when they first moved to hyderabad from their small village in southern india that forced isolation experienced by so many tamil brahmin families they would go work in these offices as clerks and masters and assistants, doing what the white man wanted. But the minute they stepped back into their home, those clothes that they wore to these offices were discarded to be kept separately. They took a shower, wore back their old clothes of dhotis and angavastram, uh, started putting back the forehead mark, and they immediately transformed into the household of the Tamil Brahmin. So in order to earn money, you are ready to step out of the door, go do these things. 
but you always came back to the fold of the household sat on the floor ate your food from a banana leaf and you know recited your sacred hymns and observed all the sacraments of the hindu family this kind of family comes first attitude this pull to the home base to tradition to the norm it runs deep it's really the most important thing and it means people are unlikely to spill the beans about something a little more deviant especially if it means tarnishing that high achieving reputation I keep coming across this every time I ask the older generation about Peripa's past, particularly about Marinissa and the lost child. They brush it away. I send Uncle Kichu to talk with Perima in Madras. He asks her about other weddings before hers with Peripa, and she says she doesn't want to talk about it. It's old stuff. It wasn't a big deal. Peripa was a great person. He did so much. We don't need to talk about that. So the likelihood of finding Marinissa or her descendants is looking increasingly bleak. The marriage between her and Peripa was likely performed in accordance with Islamic law and wouldn't have been recorded by the state of Hyderabad. And even if it was, this was pre-independence India. Those records are probably long gone. But there is one thing. that keeps coming up in conversation. I'll see if I can find any of Tata's papers and uh, we can find out. Yeah. Yeah, so this might be in those letters? In those letters, correct. Tata is my grandfather, Peripa's younger brother. Tata and Peripa were close. It was Tata's departure for university in England that lured Peripa back from Pakistan the first time he ran away. Indra and my mom, Nalini, seem to think that Peripa probably wrote to Tata in detail about all the drama with Marinissa. They would talk to each other in Urdu uh, and write letters to each other in Urdu because they both grew up in Hyderabad and were educated um, in the Urdu language. Maybe in those letters he says her full name or where she lived exactly or who her father was. Anything that might help me find her or her child today. I mean if we find some of those letters that would give us more clues as to where she she lived or maybe the address return addresses or that definitely could we could gather put together a lot of clues and and track them track it down. First my mom says she thinks the letters are in Boston. So I do some digging. Some letters I found, but those are not the ones we're looking for. No luck. My mom says maybe the letters are in India with Uncle Kichu. I ask Kichu. He says no, nothing here. I think they're in Salt Lake City with your aunt Indra. In my gut, I feel like this is a wild goose chase, but I decide to make the trip to Salt Lake City anyway. If nothing else, I get to visit my aunt. Okay, let's see here. Medical records, State Bank of Hyderabad. I spend about two days going through box after box of old stuff. Pension, Rubik's cubes, printouts of every email he ever wrote, basically. By the end of day two, I'm really starting to question whether these letters actually exist. My aunt Indra finds me frustrated. He And kept literally everything. He has. all of his medical records every pension form right, every single he... thing every piece of paper that he ever appeared on and yet i think these old letters may either be still in india and if it was left in india the next set of people who cleaned up after him might have thrown it away thinking it's unimportant or they might have said why rake up these old st- stories who is interested in it me <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean At one point when I went back maybe these letters were full of information information so threatening that they were deliberately destroyed part of that great tradition of selective memory but I'm not convinced they'd be that useful anyway they seem too good to be true a silver bullet that tells me everything I need to know but conveniently no one can find them they're a perfect way to hide the story while pretending not to I think back to that visit to Peripa in 2012, a year before his 100th birthday, 3 years before he died. I remember feeling that even then, 
So near the end, he had a force. Henry noticed it too. It was really touching. Here was this man in his 90s, quite hunched over, but dedicated to passing on this message in the notebook. And his excitement, his joy at making the connection was really palpable. I don't know why Peripa had that notebook handy. It was really a bizarre object, almost too small to be useful. But there it was, a sparkly little notebook, and on the first page, that bit of script Henry couldn't quite decipher. That day, despite his frailty, Peripa had the energy to run over to his bureau, scribble a few lines, and give us this parting gift. While I wasn't making any breakthroughs in Salt Lake City about Marinisa's identity, I was finally able to identify those lines of Arabic Peripa wrote in the notebook. The inscription reads, Zindagi kasaz bi kasaz he, bujraha he, or bi awaz he. It turns out that this is an excerpt from an Urdu poem, which was adapted to become song lyrics in a 1930s Bollywood movie. The movie tells the story of ill-fated lovers, and the woman's name is Marinisa. When I discover this, my mind begins to race with questions. What was Peripa trying to communicate? Had this story been on his mind his whole life, no matter how much he seemed to have shut himself off? By now it was clear that the chances of me finding Marinisa, or the child she and Peripa might have had, were slim to none. Whatever evidence might have existed long ago had been lost. But maybe I can take some meaning from the lines of poetry themselves. The translation is, this song of life, oh, what a melody it is. Even as it ebbs, it makes itself heard. One afternoon in my aunt's library, on a last-ditch search for the letters, I come across a small black album. It's full of really old photos. They're black and white, and only about three inches by two inches. There are pictures of my great-grandparents in Hyderabad, my grandfather's younger siblings playing in the courtyard, my grandparents' wedding. And then, finally, a photo of Peripa. He hadn't been in any of the group shots, but here he is. He looks about 30. He has a strong jaw, and he's wearing circular glasses. He's striking. He's staring at the camera, leaning back slightly, like he's got something to say, but is holding it in. I wish I could just hear all of this from him. But to hear my aunt Indra tell it, even if Peripa were here, I don't know how much she would tell me about it. When we knew Peripa in the later years, he never spoke about it. Mm, that's all he would do. I mean, he, he would chew tobacco and, you know, all that's old story. There's no need to repeat. That's all he would say. That's a famous uh, phrase that in Tamil, I'll say it in Tamil, it's so melodious. That means it's all gone. Why worry about it now? Yeah, I mean, and, you know, this idea that Peripa kind of, like a switch flipped and he was like, okay, I'll just do it. I'll just kind of accept yeah, it, this other life. As if he gave up all his dreams, all his personality, all his traits. You want me to be this, I'll be this. And that's the complicated portrait I'm left with. This image of Peripa as a young, flamboyant, adventurous spirit who goes off and does all this stuff, and the person he ends up being. Upstanding, gray, strong, very thin and reserved. That's how I remember him. And clearly there was something underneath that was different, that little spark. But Indra told me it wasn't easy for him to keep it alive. I don't ever remembering him going out with friends or doing something else that was not part of the family need. It was Perima who said, oh, we'll go to this wedding, we'll go to this get-together, and you shall come dressed like this. You know, she'll say, which means don't go into your spiels and stories there, keep quiet. And he kept quiet. And I always wondered whether he started chewing tobacco in, as an excuse to keep quiet. I never knew it, but there was a tale saying that, you know, he would come home drunk um, and Patti would nurse him back to, you know, from his stupor and feed him and then he would vanish. 
Yeah, he shut off a part of himself. Shut off a part of himself. At that time he didn't have the means to fight it anymore. And maybe giving up worked out all right because the family was not bad. They survived, they did well. So why not? Would you think he'd have been happier living in that household with a Muslim family and changing his name and doing his thing? Maybe maybe not. You know, would he have hankered after the traditions of his old home? Maybe we don't know. Who are we to judge which is the right fork you take in the road? Indra has a point. And yet, I can't help feeling like the road Paripa ultimately traveled was not the fork he chose. It was chosen for him, over and over and over again. I keep wondering if Paripa was somehow attached to the idea of his life resembling a Bollywood movie. Maybe that's why he moved to Bombay and worked in the film industry when he was young. And maybe it's why he held on to those romantic lines of poetry, like they were his mantra. I mean, his story has a classic arc. Boy from a conservative family breaks free, learns the ways of the world, gets a taste of pleasure, independence, freedom. His family tries to pull him back, but he's already fallen in love with the wrong person. Chaos ensues. Except in the Bollywood version, Paripa and Marinissa definitely would have ended up together. In the closing scene, there probably would have been a big green meadow set against mountains and lakes. The couple would have run toward each other, met in the middle, embraced amid the flowers. Dancers would have popped up out of nowhere and performed an elaborate musical theater number. There would have been several costume changes. I think about the last time I saw Peripa in that gray, austere, concrete-walled apartment. It's a very different image from the Bollywood story his life could have been. But I don't want to pity him. He made his choices. He helped create an amazing family. He touched a lot of people. But so, I mean, how do you think, like, what do you think my generation should take from Peripa's story? What can we learn from it? One thing is the family obligations don't forget them. They have sacrificed a lot to get the generations up and going. Your question is always, why didn't Peripa, you know, protest and do what he wanted, the free bird thing? But among our communities, this obligation, what shall I call it? Along with rights come responsibilities. Sometimes the responsibilities are overwhelming, but they are tried and true and have been practiced. Yeah, I totally hear that. But at the same time, I think something that I take from Peripa's story is, you know, I feel a connection to him precisely because he seems like he wanted to do things a little differently. Mm-hmm. He had some level of drive to do to do things differently, to experiment. And for me, I feel like, you know, I'm growing up in a different time. That, I'm, yeah. And I'm growing up in a different time where it's it's actually much more feasible for me to pursue what I want to do yeah, and, and how I want to live. And you have opportunity. Yeah, and I and I also yeah. So in a way I have the privilege of doing that and I feel like I need to seize that privilege and and use it. So each generation has what we call as oh the that's a very nice Tamil word for ally, or the edge, or the what's a boundary for, and we all keep crossing boundaries to expand our world, and that happens to every generation. The boundaries are different, and then when we read old history, old tales, we actually color those histories and tales with the boundaries of this generation and make it all look very nice and rosy. But what we don't grasp is. The great thing that happened was those boundaries were different. The communication was different. Therefore, it was a great thing that they did. Right. That is the important story. The it was not the yeah. They pushed the edge. I'm not sure those lines of Urdu poetry in the notebook 
are the right epigram for Perry Puz life. In the end, there's a different pair of lines I keep coming back to from the novelist Kazuo Ishiguro. There was another life that I might have had, but I am having this one. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Jacob Smith, Lindsay Cradwell, Jenna Hannum, and Janiel Kastner. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett and featured original music by Ben Levin. That voice you heard singing in Urdu at the end is Shilpa Ananth. Fact-checking by Greta Rainbow. Executive producers for season two are myself, along with Keith Reynolds and Aliyah Tavakolian at Spoke Media. For bonus material from this story and all our stories, please visit our website, familyghostspodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our email list, The Ghost Post. If you'd like to follow our show on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us at FamGoShow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O Show. Stay tuned after the credits to hear a sneak preview of next week's show. And thank you for listening to Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Next time on Family Ghosts, a seemingly innocuous mystery has haunted the Falco family for 25 years. Story's pretty simple. My mom and dad went out to eat Chinese food. The leftovers sat in the fridge overnight, and when my mother went to eat them for lunch the next day, the contents were missing. It's the toughest kind of cold case to solve. 25 years later, no one's willing to confess, and there's no forensic evidence. And beyond trying to figure out who done it, there's another, larger question to answer. Who still talks about missing takeout 25 years later? What kind of a family does this? What kind of family, indeed? Join us next week to meet the Falcos and find out if the Family Ghosts team can solve the perfect crime. You're listening to WALT. <laughs> Homemade Radio.